From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In the Democratic U.S. Senate primary, former Governor John Hickenlooper casts himself as the pragmatist on climate, on health care. I believe that what we are proposing is practical. And my experience as a small business person where you can't just build as big a restaurant as you want. Uh, You can't just have as big a a kitchen in that restaurant as you want. You have to figure out what works. We'll keep the restaurant metaphor going. Would he hire a server who didn't want the job? Hickenlooper said as much about the Senate seat before joining the race. Plus, a listener asks why he once drank fracking fluid, a gesture Hickenlooper says has been misunderstood. I think what's important is that 16 months later, we had the first methane regulations in America. Hickenlooper one-on-one... This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We chose a day in former Governor John Hickenlooper's life to get a sense of his campaign for the U.S. Senate. He's running against former State House Speaker Andrew Romanoff in this month's Democratic primary. We chose to highlight June 12th, in part because the Hickenlooper campaign invited us to drop in on a town hall that day about public lands. In the end, the day wound up being more of a roller coaster than a campaign might want. It is the morning of the 12th, and you can still feel the afterburn of a TV news report from the night before. Just days after a deadly explosion in Firestone was tied to a leaking underground pipeline, Anadarko Oil & Gas, the company that owned the line, wrote a $25,000 check to the office of then-Governor John Hickenlooper. It's an especially fraught time for a story about corporate coziness to break because later this same day, the state's Independent Ethics Commission will decide how much to fine Mr. Hickenlooper for two violations of the state's gift ban. But first, the campaign event, the centerpiece of Hickenlooper's schedule. The event is virtual, of course. That's the nature of pandemic politicking, video chatting from indoors, even when the topic is the outdoors. I appreciate all of you being here today. Uh, And I really wish I could be together with you out there enjoying our public lands. I'm glad we can do this virtually and keep everyone safe. We need to flip the Senate and defeat Donald Trump to finally pass the CORE Act and stop all these attacks on public lands. Uh, President Trump and Senator Gardner have overseen the largest rollback of of protected public lands in the history of this country. Joining the forum, the man Hickenlooper hopes to work alongside in the U.S. Senate, Michael Bennett. If Hickenlooper wins the primary, then the general, it won't be the first time they work side by side. Bennett was his chief of staff as Denver mayor. When I think about the prospect, the possibility that we could end up with two Democratic senators uh, Mm -hmm. from New Mexico, two Democratic senators from Colorado, two Democratic senators from Montana, two Democratic senators from Arizona, two Democratic senators from Nevada, all of whom not only have public lands as a huge priority, but addressing climate change as a huge priority. You can really begin to see the potential for an incredible amount of change to happen uh, in the Senate, in the House, uh, and with a new president. You heard a reference earlier to the CORE Act, a comprehensive public lands bill that has stalled in Congress with no support from the other side of the aisle. Much of the virtual campaign event is spent pondering why many local Republican leaders embrace the legislation while those in D.C. are unmoved. 
Well, it's approaching one o'clock. This video conference winds down, but an arguably more consequential one is getting underway. One of the issues we've had in the commission for a long time is we worry about being used by uh, complainants and respondents alike for uh, political purposes. A meeting of Colorado's Independent Ethics Commission. Commission has always been on guard about is to not be bound by tactical decisions of the parties. The commissioners are deciding how much to fine Higginlooper for accepting gifts he shouldn't have while he was governor. A flight to Connecticut on a private jet, a fancy car ride during a conference in Europe. Just to clarify, the vote is for $550, correct? My understanding, Madam Chair, is that this is 275 doubled for a total of $550. Yes. Okay, then yes. Uh, Commissioner Johnson. Yes. Commissioner Willett. Yes. Commissioner Leone. Yes. Madam Chair. No. All told, they levied $2,750 in fines. They do not fine Hickenlooper for being a no-show to an earlier hearing for which they held him in contempt. And I think that concludes our deliberations. And I want to thank the commissioners for their time and the parties. Um, that would conclude, I believe, the Hickenlooper matter and the deliberations that the commission had to do. So thank you very much. Some of the ups and downs in the course of a single day as former Governor John Hickenlooper campaigns for Senate with deeper pockets and deeper national party support than his primary rival, Andrew Romanoff. You can hear my in-depth discussion with Mr. Romanoff at CPR.org. Today, it's Mr. Hickenlooper who joined me in the studio at a safe distance across our roundtable. Governor, welcome back to the program. Thanks. I'd like to start with climate change, which you've said dealing with is a top priority. Your stated goal is to get to 100% renewable energy uh, with net zero emissions by 2050. What do you see as the biggest obstacle to achieving that goal? Well, like any big goal, the You've got to get people to believe that you can do it. You've got to have a credible pathway. But obviously, there's got to be a transition to electric vehicles, part of why we took our Volkswagen fraud money or a significant chunk of it to work with other Western states to create the foundations for a network of rapid recharging stations for electric vehicles. We've also got to stop using coal for to generate electricity. And again, a great model we did here in Colorado closing the two coal plants down in Pueblo, replacing them with wind, solar, and batteries. So that is where you begin to get market forces where people can get can put in new facilities and have clean air, clean water, and they save money at the same time. Uh, but we also, just let me, I'm sorry, I'm taking too long. Well, no, <laughs> I'm, there, I'm out of there, practice. I, I think the reason I was interjecting is you said the first obstacle is convincing people it's necessary and possible. Right. Is that convincing Republicans? Is that convince? Who's that convincing? Well, there was a long, hundreds of millions of dollars campaign of disinformation, uh, saying that climate change was a hoax, climate change wasn't real, whereas the vast majority of scientists agree that it is very real, a significant threat to the future of our planet, and largely uh, caused by the activities of mankind. So. That's the first challenge because we've got to recognize, and and again, the large oil companies are no longer funding that disinformation. And I think we are at a moment where we can begin to make real progress in letting people see a future where 
they can address climate change, and it's not going to be the end of the economy. It's not going to be, you know, we're not going to spend trillions of dollars and and lose, you know, millions of jobs. We do have challenges in industry. You know, concrete is a very widely used basic component of, of almost all of our uh, everything we do, and it gives off it, it, in the process of creating uh, concrete, and then as it cures, it gives off a lot of CO2. There are ways we can innovate and find better ways of building things. Concrete's always been so easy and available that, that people haven't had a motivation. But there are a bunch of things in industry like that where we have to innovate. Same thing in agriculture. So that innovation, what I argue is that the innovation is going to create not just jobs, but whole new professions. And we're going to create many, many more jobs that are going to be lost in the transition. And in many ways, those new professions are going to transform other industries as well, just like just like aerospace industry did 50 years ago. Your opponent, Mr. Romanoff, says these goals can be reached faster. His plan would cut in half the total greenhouse gas emissions from all sectors by 2030, replace fossil fuels with clean energy to meet electrical needs by 2035, uh, and reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040. He favors the Green New Deal, which, speaking of jobs, uh, the outline of the Green New Deal would guarantee jobs to Americans who want them. If, as you describe, climate change is the defining issue of our time, why not push for these faster goals? Well, what I say is 2050 at the absolute latest. If we can get to 2045, 2040, you know, I've got a master's in earth and environmental science. So I spent a fair amount of time. Back then we called it, we didn't call it climate change. We called it the greenhouse effect. But we knew it was a real threat. There has been a, a huge amount of research looking at what are the stages and the steps that we need to go through to get to a net zero economy in terms of uh, how we use energy. But certainly, we, we've got to have a fierce urgency. We've got to do everything we can, and not just in the United States. Us getting to net zero just by ourselves, if we can't bring the rest of the world with us, it'll be a pretty hollow victory. Okay, so speak to the primary voter who says, one guy wants to do this by 2050, one guy wants to do it considerably faster. I'm voting for that guy. Yeah, well, that's the, that is the, the challenge. I believe that what we are proposing is pragmatic, and practical. And my experience as a small business person where you can't just build as big a restaurant as you want. Uh, You can't just have as big a a kitchen in that restaurant as you want. You have to figure out what works. And I think what we need in Washington is maybe not another great uh, legislator. Uh, Obviously, legislators have become incredibly good at attacking the other side or their opponent in a primary. And they also have these, they, they create these flourishes and these visions of what they can do. But once you've implemented large programs, like when we implemented the Affordable Care Act, is would be one example, you really get into the, the weeds of the process and you see it from a different perspective. And one of the things I want to, I really am excited about doing in Washington is being able to address how legislation in Washington affects states and affects cities and municipalities. In February of 2013, you testified before a U.S. Senate panel and revealed that you'd sat around with oil executives and you'd taken a swig of fracking fluid. Listener Jocelyn Mullen of Grand Junction has a question for you about that. I'd like to know how he justifies drinking food-grade fracking fluid to assure all of us that 
fracking is safe. He lost my respect that day. I need to understand his thought process. Does he not think we're intelligent enough to see through that? If all fracking fluid were food grade, there wouldn't be a problem. Please justify your actions, Governor. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, and I appreciate the question. What I was doing in that process was trying to, I had several executives uh, from oil companies, I was trying to get to a point a, that they reveal what the ingredients were in frac fluid, and that's when they produce this food-grade frac fluid. But really, I wanted to get to the point where they would agree to negotiate for regulations prohibiting fugitive emissions, right? Fugitive emissions is when they vent uh, methane or any of these uh, oxides from tanks or pipes or batteries or, they, or their leaks. And no state had ever been able to get the oil and gas industry to agree to regulate fugitive emissions. And they didn't trust me. They thought I was a a puppet of those lefty environmentalists. And when he took the sip of this stuff, they were either going to trust me or not. That was the reason. I wasn't trying to show how safe fracking fluid was. I've got a master's in earth and environmental science. I understand the difference. What I was trying wasn't that the impression that it gave? It did. And I tried in every way I could to dispel it. But sometimes these myths get going. I think what's important is that 16 months later, we had the first methane regulations in America. You were saying that the oil execs thought you were kind of lefty, and yet your critics on the left have called you Frackenlooper. That reputation might have been bolstered by this recent investigation from CBS4 and the Colorado Sun, which found that Several Colorado governors have accepted private donations to the state to fund programs and employees in their administrations. So it is a practice that started before you and continues, by the way, in the Paulus administration. But in your case, a significant amount of money, at least $325,000 in your second term, came from the oil and gas industry. Some of it from Anadarko, just weeks after an explosion killed two people at a house in Firestone. And officials later traced that back to an Anadarko well. Does that indicate that the industry has some influence over you? No, of course not. I, I'm the one that got them to agree to methane regulations. That They spend $60 million a year on that. I don't know what Anadarko's part is. We, our community partnerships, which received this money, was run completely separate from the governor's office. They didn't ask me to make calls. They didn't tell me when someone gave money. These public-private partnerships are what you use when you're in, in lean times to maintain programs you think are important for the people of Colorado. So one book, uh, one Colorado, you know, making sure that we provided 450,000 four-year-old kids for many of them, the first book that they'd ever owned. You know, when we had the flood in 2013, we raised millions of dollars from corporate generosity. We didn't go out and ask them. We didn't know who it was. But we knew that people had lost almost everything, and we had to do everything we could to rebuild them. But we made sure that every donation was on the programs, was uh, in some sort of a news release somewhere. Maybe not perfect, but we took that transparency to a new level. I'd like to talk about health care. This is another area where you and Mr. Romanoff are fairly far apart. Romanoff wants Medicare for all. You call for a public option that would ultimately get the country to universal coverage. I want to note that millions of people across the country have been thrown out of work by the COVID-19 pandemic. And Mr. Romanoff says that proves 
People can't rely on employers right now to provide them with insurance. When not only 28 million Americans are uninsured and 44 million are underinsured, but when as many as 43 million more Americans may lose their employer-based coverage because of this downturn, surely that's a time for us to say your health insurance should not depend on your job. He thinks this is the time to scrap employer-based health coverage. Uh, presumably by building on the Affordable Care Act, you'd keep that in place. Is, is this the time and place for that? Well, uh, we just don't agree. Uh, you know, Barack Obama created the Affordable Care Act, a uh, transformational moment. You know, Andrew wants to discard it, just scrape it off and, and start all over again. I mean, Medicare exists. Sure, but it's not, not in the scale. The, uh, again, you'd have to scrap all the other, uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and, and, and again, people's private insurance, whether they want to lose it or not, uh, great transformations in American history are generally done uh, by giving Americans choices, not forcing them to accept a different solution than what, they, what they're accustomed to. Uh, and I think that's the challenge here. Uh, I don't think we should scrape away and discard what Barack Obama created. I think we should build on it as a foundation. So would the public option mean that no one is uninsured? Yes. It would allow us to get to universal coverage, I think, much more rapidly. And, you know, the, the people that lost their insurance in the COVID-19 pandemic, if they're out of work, they go immediately into Medicaid. So there's a relatively smooth transition possible to make sure that in this system, people have constant coverage. The public option done properly, and it, that means it's a sliding scale. It's maybe a combination of Medicare and Medicare Advantage, or, uh, and maybe even some parts of Medicaid. But it's a, a public option that will be sufficiently attractive that people will be able to afford it and will be able to use it uh, and will allow us to you know, finally in this country, get to universal coverage. I mean, it sounds so easy and breezy and reasonable. One wonders why it hasn't happened yet. Well, I can explain that to you. <laughs> okay. There, there's a, a, a political party that was so adamantly opposed to the Affordable Care Act that they proclaim publicly, and Mitch McConnell has said this many times, and Cory Gardner supports it, that they want nothing to do with improving the Affordable Care Act. They will only be satisfied if it is you know, the, if their lawsuit succeeds and it goes to the trash bins of history. And I think that function that, that they are trying to achieve, the lawsuit that Cory Gardner supports by eliminating the Affordable Care Act, and they really don't have anything to take its place. In Colorado, they tell me it's 2.4 million people have pre-existing medical conditions that would lose their protections if the Affordable Care Act went away. Why aren't more people talking about that? Uh, I'd like to talk about the ethics case uh, it was against you. The state's independent ethics commission found that you twice violated Colorado's ban on accepting valuable gifts while you were in office. Uh, once on a trip to commission a submarine named after Colorado, another time at a conference in Europe. You were fined $2,750. Uh, but at least as big a point of contention was that you skipped the first day of the hearing and the commission found you in contempt at one point, Mr. Romanoff suggested you drop out of the race because of this. Did you ever consider dropping out after the ethics no, uh, commission the, had finished its work? Did I mean, it give you pause, like, maybe I'm too bruised or too damaged to move forward? No. This is 
an example of what politics in Washington has become, and it's clearly coming out to, to Colorado in this cycle. We're talking about trips I took when I was governor of Colorado. Literally, I said I would fly anywhere and everywhere to try and rebuild Colorado's economy. We were 40th in job creation when I started. And I literally went everywhere to talk about the Colorado way and how we did things better and we could collaborate. And we were a great place to open an office. Uh, so one trip was to a conference. Uh, it was a long way away. So I didn't want to have even the appearance of misconduct. So I paid my own airfare. I paid what I was told were all the costs of the conference, the hotel, the, the meals. Evidently, there was a sponsor. And so ground transportation and maybe a couple meals weren't covered. Uh, somehow, I, you know, I didn't know about that. The, the people, my team, uh, we have lawyers and schedulers who look at every time I travel to make sure that it conforms with all the ethics criteria as we know them. So that was one violation. And then the second one was a, a violation of going to, as you say, the USS Colorado uh, in Connecticut. I went on the plane of the, the foundation, the, the board members of the company and the foundation that were helping create the ceremony and, and, and actually make sure that Colorado was supporting the sailors on this new submarine. Again, I take responsibility for these violations, but these allegations came from a dark money Republican organization, and we were found in violation of two relatively minor, I mean, it wasn't... Let me just say, some of the claims against you had expired because of the statute of limitations. I mean, the commission found that you violated the gifts ban twice. They dismissed four other trips included in the complaint. You know, the commissioner, Bill Leone, uh, whom you appointed... He voted to find you in violation, just want to be clear. And he said, quoting here, if we allow this kind of special privately financed treatment for elected officials, it just kind of accentuates the cynicism, speaking there of voter cynicism about politics. Do you, do you fear that this increases cynicism? Well, I certainly think that the way it's being weaponized by the Republicans will increase uh, cynicism. But that's just where our politics has come to. We did everything we could. Any mistakes were inadvertent. They were unintentional. And this was, again, a Republican dark money group that was created solely for the purpose of, of drumming up every allegation they could think of and hoping that something would stick. I do want to talk about policing, which is under an intense spotlight after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. When you were Denver mayor, you adopted what's called broken windows policing. It's the idea that even minor criminal activity, like a broken window, leads to other more serious crimes and that police should crack down on small violations. At the time, researchers some of them were skeptical. Now, critics say it has increased incarceration rates in minority communities, that it didn't really cut down on crime. Do you regret broken windows? Well, it was an experiment, a brief experiment. You know, when, when Paul Childs got shot, and if you'll remember, Paul Childs was a 15-year-old uh, African-American teenager who was shot in his own front hall two weeks before I got inaugurated. And I went to his funeral with Mayor Webb, my predecessor, and, and his wife, Wilma, and I met some of the black ministerial alliance, uh, an alliance of roughly 35 black pastors. And I needed their help to address what clearly was unacceptable. This was, you know, this wasn't the first police shooting we had that year. And we began a process over 18 months of major police reform. This is 10 years before Ferguson, where we created an officer of an independent monitor with subpoena powers to investigate any allegation of police brutality. We had to create a civilian oversight commission to make sure that 
The community could decide and have a loud voice in how their neighborhood was policed. We went to every single police officer and and gave them CIT training, crisis intervention and de-escalation training, so that they were trained on how to talk their way down from confrontations. There's a whole long list of what we did. And I'm the first to say we didn't go far enough. Um, Was broken windows misguided? uh, You know, I don't think it was successful as or or uh, catastrophic in other words i haven't gone back and looked at the data but my memory of it was that we were trying to to find ways to engage the community in the safety of their own neighborhoods we looked at everything this was a, a time when we were trying to make our community safer but also recognizing that we had real issues between the police department and uh and the black community and and the latino community I do want to talk about racial equity, noting that you've been criticized for your remarks about race. At a forum in May, you were asked what the term Black Lives Matter means to you, and you responded that it means every life matters. You've since said you tripped on your words. Uh, Then in a debate, you referred to the shooting of George Floyd, and you've apologized for old video of you that emerged comparing the life of a politician to that of a slave. Um... It's something you said in the debate that CPR sponsored this week that I want to pick up on, though, that amidst the protests, you had a realization, quote, I felt that I just hadn't done enough, that I hadn't pushed myself and my team to get as much done as we should have. So what is a step you'd take towards racial equity as a U.S. senator? The media has been very focused on uh, the police brutality. And that's part of what I was referring to. You know, we be- made one of the original uh, efforts to dramatically reduce the use of strangleholds, um, chokeholds. But now we realize we probably should have just eliminated it. Uh, we changed the discipline matrix, how police could be punished so that even their first violation, if they lie about an incident, they could be fired. We were never able to do that before. We did all those things, but clearly we didn't go far enough. But what about the issues around the systemic inequity in housing or in healthcare? The systemic inequity in education and education outcomes and in jobs, just opportunity. This country was founded under the, the, the concept, and perhaps alone in the world, that all people are equal uh, and all people are created equal. And we have not lived up to that. And I think we're at a point now where we can begin to look at what are the specific things you do in terms of making sure that, that there is equity in housing and where are the, how many vouchers do you need, what kind of subsidies do you need for affordable housing, and what are the, the, the simultaneously ways that you increase the earnings of African-American workers. Mr. Kindleberg, there have been uh, ways you've talked about the Senate race, the Senate seat, uh, before you actually joined the race that, you know, didn't paint the job in the greatest light for you. You said that it (laughs) uh, wasn't necessarily a job you wanted in various ways or that you think you'd derive much joy from. And it it just occurred to me that you ran restaurants for a long time. And I just want you to imagine that you were hiring a front of house manager, right? And there are two candidates for the job, one of whom has said in the past, I don't really want this job. It doesn't fit me. I don't think I'd be good at it. And then there's a candidate who goes, I'd love that job. That's the job I want. Wouldn't you, as a restaurant <laughs> owner, go with the guy 
who had never professed he didn't want the job. Uh, that person who had not wanted the job would have to convince me that they had changed and they'd have to have a compelling argument. And my argument is that I did badmouth Washington as a broken place. The, the Senate was a place where good ideas go uh, go to die. Uh, but as I as I reflected and, and discussed with my with my wife, my neighbors, uh, old friends, it, it was pointed out to me. I called a number of former governors who'd gone on to become senators. Uh, I talked to some small business owners and who'd gone into the Senate. I mean, there are only there are only five or six people in the Senate now who've ever had any small business experience, that's probably at a historic low. It's the same skills. What what I was, if I was a restaurant owner and this person who said they weren't cut out for the job was gonna explain why they were the best, I'd wanna hear them say, what are the skills they've got? When I came in as mayor and I got all 34 mayors unanimously to support fast tracks, right? Uh, the was, transportation program in Metro Denver. Yeah, one of, well, one of the most ambitious transit initiatives in modern American history. And the only time in modern American history where a metropolitan region got all 34 mayors, Republicans and Democrats, to support a tax increase, that ability to get people who don't like each other, and and I changed that. And to this day, we have agreements that you can't poach, you know, offer incentives to take a business from one municipality to another. That's what they need in Washington. They don't need another person to go in and yell at the other side or to have wonderful, rosy speeches about what we're going to do. They need someone who's got clear track record of bringing people together, finding common ground, making decisions that lead to solutions, and moving on to the next project. Okay, in the last two minutes here, when Andrew Romanoff was on the show, uh, we heard from someone who endorsed you, and we presented that to Mr. Romanoff. Uh, so we'll do the same with you. I rang up former state lawmaker Joe Salazar. He has endorsed Romanoff. I asked him why he didn't sign on to your campaign. Well, I think it's about time that we have elected officials or those who are running for office provide clarity uh, in terms of how they're going to represent us in either federal, state, or local government. And one thing that Hickenlooper does all the time is he hedges his bets and he doesn't provide any clarity to community about anything. What do you say to someone who thinks you're wishy-washy, that you test the waters a lot before you make a decision? Well, I certainly listen to, on, on difficult decisions, I listen to a lot of people. I think that's a good thing. What I would argue is if you go down, go to our website. If you want to look and see the specifics of how we're going to address climate change, there's a lot more detail on our website than there is on Andrew's. Uh, if you want to look at, at health care, I believe we can get a lot faster. We can get to universal coverage a lot faster through a public option than we ever could discarding everything that Barack Obama built, just you know, getting rid of it, and then starting from scratch. These are specific details about major issues where I can support the details of what is being asked. So I understand that it took me a long time to make up my mind about the death penalty. No question about it. It was a difficult decision, and I did talk to a lot of people. But I didn't spin out the appeals process or, or go beyond the, the time that had been allotted before I had to make that decision. I made the decision in the appropriate amount of time. And I think I made the right decision. The state now recognizes, and most polling shows, that people recognize that the death penalty is unfair. Oftentimes, you know, the wrong person gets found guilty and sentenced to die. It's long overdue to be 
to be repealed. And it wasn't until the next administration that it was repealed. It's true, but that's that's the point of, of the process. I took the hard stand and started a statewide discussion. This is a big decision, but we got to the right decision. And in that process, we changed public sentiment. We had to build public sentiment, and we did that. And now we have a solution that, that the state can respect, and it's not going to be a pendulum going back and forth. Thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Former Governor John Hickenlooper is running against former Speaker of the State House and mental health advocate Andrew Romanoff. The Democratic U.S. Senate primary is June 30th. Once again, you can hear our in-depth interview with Romanoff at CPR.org. And if you do listen to that, there's something you may notice. It's longer. That's because Hickenlooper only gave us about half the time. If you are curious what it sounds like when these men go head to head, check out the debate we co-sponsored earlier this week, also at CPR.org and at the Colorado Public Radio Facebook page. This is Colorado Matters. To encourage support from those in a position to give, starting Saturday, an anonymous donor will match every gift up to $100,000. Member support ensures that the vital news and music heard on Colorado Public Radio remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Keep CPR strong. Make your gift. It'll be doubled. The match starts tomorrow. Donate at CPR.org. The late painter Clifford Still was brilliant, prolific, and difficult. He remains well-respected in the art world, although that world didn't always understand his brilliance. One of Still's paintings recently sold at auction for $24 million. And of course, a Denver museum is devoted entirely to his work. It can display no other artist. A new documentary about Clifford Still features recordings he made that have never been heard before. When I hang a painting, I would have it say, here am I. This is my presence, my feeling, myself. Here I stand, implacable, proud, alive, naked, unafraid. If one does not like it, he should turn away, because I am looking at him. He sounds rather imposing, doesn't he? Which is how it can feel to stand before one of Still's giant paintings, with what might look like a lightning bolt shooting down a dark canvas. This new film, Lifeline, tells the story of Still's rocky relationship with the art establishment and with other artists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. The director of the film is art collector and documentarian Dennis Scholl. And Dennis, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. It's great to be here. Still was a pioneer in the field of abstract expressionism, which springs up after World War II. Help us understand this term, lifeline, how it plays into Still's work. Well, the tale is told that Still was really treated like a hired hand by his father, who was a who was a subsistence farmer. And one day he tied a rope around Still's ankles and lowered him all the way down a well they were digging to see if they had hit water yet. <laughs> and all Still could remember is going down that well, down, 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 and finally you know, getting to the bottom well and then being brought back up. And somehow it had a profound effect on him. And that became kind of the metaphor for the lifeline that he put in most of his paintings. Yeah, the lifeline. So I described it as something resembling a lightning bolt. How would you <laughs> convey it to people? No, I, I, I think that's fair. His paintings are very craggy. 
Um, there, there are references to landscape, although he would never admit that there were landscape references. He grew up on the Alberta Prairie and then North Dakota and then finally wound up in uh, San Francisco and New York. But he, he always was able to kind of convey this mountainous feeling where the paintings feel bigger than you are, not just in scale, but in the way that they impact you personally. Do you think that was abusive of his father? And do you think it paints a picture of like the broader home that, that Clifford still probably grew up in? I think that uh, being a farmer at, in that time was a very, very difficult moment. Still also talks about shucking wheat and being forced to kind of gather it and put it together until your arms bleed. And, and in the museum, in the very early part of the museum with, with his early work, there's a painting he made that is a picture of, of somebody leaning over, shucking wheat with the blood literally running down their arms. So I, I, I think it all had a tremendous impact on him and made him simply want to get away. Yeah, it's fascinating when you walk through the Clifford Still Museum in Denver, which hopefully we'll be able to do again at some point. Uh, you do you do see how he begins with figures, recognizable human form, and then he uh, graduates, evolves into the kinds of craggy, abstract expressionist paintings that we've been talking about thus far. Um, I think it's evident in the tape we heard at the top of Clifford Still, and this is certainly a theme in your film, that very strong principles guided his art, and I think in some ways his life. What would you say those principles were? I think the most important thing for him were two things. One, integrity, and second, control of his work. He was very, very wary of the what we would call the art industrial complex, that group of uh, dealers, critics, curators, and large museums that seemed to kind of run the art world with puppet strings. He was terrified of that and, and disdainful of it, and he wouldn't play, basically. <laughs> he, he would talk to critics, but he really held them in, in, uh, in, in disdain. He, he, he really disliked critics, I think, more than anybody else. And, um, and, and, and so he wouldn't, the art world is a situation where you go along to get along and, uh, he wouldn't do it and wound up withdrawing almost completely. I kept thinking as I watched your film, how much Clifford still would hate Twitter, <laughs> just how showy it is and how everyone has an opinion. Uh, Clifford still was part of a group of artists who remain well known today, including Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, as I mentioned, Barnett Newman, uh, why don't we hear from Still's daughter, Sandra Still-Campbell, describing uh, his influence on those other artists. He liberated their work. Their work changed almost overnight because of him. They were fumbling, where do we go from here? And Clifford provided them with the answer. Get rid of the frame, go inward. What is it that you have to say? And so on. This group of artists was called the Irascibles, and I don't know about the other artists, but that definitely fits Still, who ended up fighting with almost all of them. In particular, he thought Mark Rothko had sold out to that sort of artist-industrial complex. Uh, Still said he told Rothko that. Rothko moved on, back where he belonged, into his fuzzy Bauhaus cultural associations and was very happy to leave the rigor I set 
for the creative act. Let's just stop for a minute. So can I ask where those tapes come from? I, I imagine that for a filmmaker, this is like a goldmine. Oh, yes. When I got the call from the archivist and they said, you're not going to believe what we found, I was gleeful because it was really still in his own words. And that's a very difficult thing to obtain from a subject that's been gone for 35 years. So that was an amazing moment. And, of course, it's also still at his most cantankerous, almost brutal to somebody like Rothko, who he had a beautiful relationship with in the early years. They encouraged each other. They helped each other in so many ways. Rothko wrote the first uh, essay on Still's work for his show in New York. But as the years went by and Still clung to his uh, his integrity and refused to be part of this art world that made artists almost like a secondary thought, Rothko went on and said, hey, I have a family. My paintings are selling I'm going to make what I make. Fuzzy rectangles. Oh my, what a takedown. (sighs) Fuzzy rectangles. That's how he wound up describing Rothko. I like those fuzzy rectangles. So I I guess we all do. Yeah, in that way, I might disagree with Clifford still. He sounds mean, still does. Do you think he was mean? You know, when I started to make the film, my biggest concern was that I wanted to make sure that I humanized him. And the way I was able to do that was both in talking to his family, number one, and second, in using that 28 minutes of home movie footage. Clifford Still was fiercely passionate about his role in contemporary art uh, and would do anything, including be cantankerous, uh, be difficult about it. But to his family, he was a loving guy. He was a loving father. He loved his daughters, and uh, uh, they feel that way to this day. They also, though, were awed by him in the same way that most people were at the time. I mean, Robert Motherwell called him the original. Yeah, I mean, the film features both Sandra and his other daughter, Diane, and they do share loving memories of him. But there's a memorable scene where Sandra describes him standing over her crib as a baby, uh, I'm sure she heard this story much later in life, but what, what does Clifford still say to his daughter? He says to his daughter when she's in her crib, just a, a month or two old, he says, I love you, babe, but you'll never come first. The painting will always come first. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's a brutal honesty to that as well. I I, I even wonder if most people who would put their child second would even have the self-awareness to say so. I think that says something about Still, too. Well, I think that for him, he felt like he was the most important painter of his time. And he wanted to be considered in the same breath as people like Rubens. Uh, You know, he wanted to be thought of as an old master painter, because in his mind, those were the painters. Things that were going on around him at the same time, he respected the work to the extent that he could, but he really felt like he was uh, so far ahead of everybody, and everything that he was doing was liberating people. He was allowing them to put the canvas up on the wall in a much larger scale than we'd ever seen before, invite the viewer to almost enter the canvas, and to create a painting in which there were almost no borders. And that liberated Pollock, that liberated uh, Barnett Newman, who he didn't like very much either, uh, and it liberated Rothko. So he, he was not wrong about who he was. But, of course, history has shown that if you withdraw 
and you disappear from the art world, the art world ignores you. And that's what had happened to Clifford Still later in his life. He called the Museum of Modern Art a gas chamber of culture. And he wasn't much kinder to some of the people who paid for his work. I'm thinking of one time when Still didn't like the way a painting was displayed in someone's home. Tell us that story just briefly. Well, um, Osorio, who was the uh, heir to the Domino Sugar Fortune and was also an artist and still had struck up a relationship and still lent Osorio a painting. Osorio then came back to Still and said, hey, I'm going to lend the painting you lent me to a show in Europe. And Still said, no, no, you're not. I want you to send that painting back to me right away. And he didn't do it. Still drove cross country, got in a car with his daughter, went to Osorio's house, searched the house while Osorio was upstairs, afraid to come down, (laughs) found the painting, took a knife and cut the heart out of the painting, turned around and walked out. We still have that piece of canvas that he cut out at the museum. So literal and so figurative to cut the heart out of something. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Now, the story evolves over years. And of course, you know how that goes with kind of a, you know, uh, the playing of telephone. But Sandra tells the story later in years that Osorio finally came downstairs, saw still there and still shook his finger under Osorio's nose and said, when I tell you to return one of my paintings, you obey my order. Still had forgotten he had the knife and Osorio thought still was going to slit his throat. Oh, my goodness. And of course, the exacting nature continues past his death onto the museum that would be built with his works, which winds up in Denver and can only show Stills' works exclusively. Uh, Dennis, thanks so much for spending time with us. It's my pleasure. I hope people come out and see the film. Art collector and award-winning filmmaker Dennis Scholl directed the documentary Lifeline, Clifford Still. We spoke in March. The Still Museum in Denver is still closed, but it's hosting a virtual screening of the documentary, followed by a conversation with Scholl and the museum director on Thursday, June 25th at 7 p.m. Saturday is the first day of summer, and we're taking your gardening and yard questions. Are you worried about extreme weather, be it intense heat or hail? Frustrated by rabbits feasting on flowers? What's on your mind now that summer's here? We'll get answers next week from Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthid with CSU Extension. So leave us a voicemail with your questions. Dial our main number and then extension 480 So 303-871-9191, extension 480. One more time, 303-871-9191, extension 480, for your gardening questions. Finally today, new music from Denver artist SF1. The rapper released the track Without You just as quarantine began. It features vocalist and co-writer Brooke Villani, also from Denver. Did you write that that wasn't enough for you? Thought that I would let you play me like a fool But I'm all good without you Ask me why Me, you never were. DJ, 
tables turn. Life faded between us two. Fought for you, went for something new, then you got a clue. Realize you lost. Looking for the difference, you were short of the cost. Now you're trying to shoot your shot. Blocked. Trying to get back in my world. Stop. I'm not phased. Game from the pain you played. One strike, you're out. Now I'm great. Learn from the games you played. Yeah, you fouled out. Pat denied. Oh, you tried. Impossible for you to get through. Recombine or decline. Enjoy the view of my life without you. Did you right? Without you, from Denver rapper SF1, special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher, who produced our interviews with the Senate primary candidates. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm not sure.